0: Well, you can have a seat and open up to Revelation 11. I'm probably going to take the rest of the time we have. I will do my best for that to be the only time I take. Um, We covered an entire chapter of Revelation in one night last week. We will not do that tonight. We will only get through two verses tonight. Uh, God willing, next week we will get through verses 3 through 14 We'll have a members meeting, and then a week after that, we'll finally hear the seventh trumpet sound. So, um, very tempting to tackle the second half of this interlude here, the second interlude in Revelation, all at once. But I think that the first couple verses of chapter 11 actually require us to deal with them separately. And that is because chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, represent a point of pretty major divergence. Um, on your tables, you should have some handouts, all right? One of them looks like almost like a flow chart where it's like question and answer, okay? And it's cut off on the side. It should say, Pastor Michael's understanding of Revelation 11, 1 and 2. Um, if you are getting the digital versions of these because you're following us on social media, they should be posted and yours will not be cut off. The other one says, Daniel 70 weeks, and we'll get there later, all right? We'll get there later. Boy, it's a good time. Um, so we'll get there when we get there. We have two other handouts up here if you would like them. We have the different Revelation timelines. You can come right up and get them right now. No no shame. Um, and then there's another one that's got the seven cycles of Revelation. Those two were out before Christmas. These two are new tonight. All right, so I put all my cards on the table with you all back in September. That I would be teaching Revelation from the idealist perspective and that I understand the book of Revelation, uh, particularly when it comes to understanding the millennial reign of Christ. I understand it from the amillennial perspective and I have done that. I've taught Revelation as a book that is not so much chronological, but as a book showing us the same set of events from seven different perspectives in seven different cycles. I have taught it with the understanding that much of what we see in the book is actually happening right now all around us. I have taught it as a picture book with all these moving images that require us often to go back to the Old Testament in order to understand their meaning. Um, I have taught it as a book that you need your Old Testament in hand in order to be able to understand it. Um, I have taught it in the sense that while it is helpful to have charts and diagrams, which we have some before us tonight, that we don't need charts and diagrams, and we don't need timelines, and that we need the same thing the original audience in the seven churches of Asia Minor needed, which is their Bibles and the Holy Spirit of God. The idealist perspective is pretty different from the futurist and the preterist perspective. The futurist perspective, which certainly includes the popular left-behind view or dispensationalism, sees most of Revelation as occurring in the future. The preterist approach sees most of the book being fulfilled before or during 70 AD. Probably not too many preterists in the room tonight, maybe a couple. I know we've got some futurists, all right? Um, I hope you have noticed that over the last few months, I have not sought to argue with you, okay? Um, Because I don't have interest in arguing about whether or not the left-behind view of, of the book of Revelation is correct. If we get to the end and Jesus comes back and all you dispensationalists are right, I'm going to rejoice right alongside with you, okay? And if we get to the end and all the amillennialists are right and the idealists are right, guess what? All the dispensationalists are not going to be like, well, then I'm not celebrating this because I wasn't right about my interpretation. No, we're all going to rejoice because the Lamb is back, right? So I'm not interested in the argument. If we get to the end of this study, and you all understand Revelation from the idealist perspective, you disagree with it. You're like, I get what an idealist believes about Revelation, I get what Pastor Michael believes about it, I don't agree with it, but man, did I get a lot of biblical knowledge and application along the way. Praise God. If we get to the end of this, and you're like, I am an idealist, and I agree with everything Pastor Michael said, but you don't get any biblical knowledge and real application from it, you're just like, I, 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 I that's where I stand great. You have like a place where you stand, but what has it done for your life, right? No. If you get to the end of this, you're like, yes, I'm an idealist, but more importantly, I gained biblical knowledge and application from this study. Praise God. Dr. John MacArthur has had as much of an influence in how I teach and preach and think about the Bible as anybody on earth. He would look at me and say, you are so wrong about what you think about this book. My friend Peter Hess is teaching Revelation at Christ Fellowship in Williamsburg at his church. And he's teaching it from a futurist perspective. He's not a dispensationalist. All dispensationalists are futurists. Not all futurists are dispensationalists. He's not a dispensationalist. He's what you would call a historic premillennialist, which you can look at what that is on that handout we had over here, okay? Which looks like we ran out of. I'll print more for next week. Um, He would say I'm wrong, okay? J.I. Packer, well-respected, well-loved man, um, one of the most influential teachers of the last 100 years, would say, brother, you're right on with what you're saying. And St. Augustine, I believe, would say, you're right on with what you're saying. I say all that to remind us this is great content for learning, growing, discussing, and understanding. It is terrible content to fight about. All that disclaimer is necessary because this point of divergence tonight is about the temple and whether or not it needs to rebuilt. And boy, do people get emotional about this. Because it touches politics, and it touches how we view the physical nation of Israel. And since this can be an emotionally charged issue, I want to take time with it. And I also think that these two verses have an incredible application, and uh, I want to take time with that application. And whether you agree with what I say about the first two verses tonight, I think you'll love the application. A little bit of context, we're getting toward the end of the third of seven cycles in Revelation. Revelation. The first used the seven churches of Asia Minor to show us how things would be until Jesus returns and how the church will suffer, but she will be rewarded if she remains faithful. The second cycle used the seven seals to show us what history would be like until Jesus returns. And now the third cycle uses the seven trumpets to do the same things. We have seen six of the seven trumpets and we are now in this interlude which takes place in chapter 10 in the first half of chapter 11. It's exactly like the seals. There was an interlude in chapter 7 in between the 6th and 7th seals, now we have an interlude here in chapters 10 and 11 in between the 6th and the 7th trumpets. In chapter 10 last week, the interlude showed us what John must do. He must eat the scroll, internalize the message from the scroll, take that message to the nations. And the church's witness is in the same pattern as John. We must uh, internalize the word of God and then take the message of revelation to the nations. And in chapter 11, we're going to see how the church does that. We're going to see how the church goes about being a witness for Christ in between the sixth and seventh trumpets and how the world will respond to our witness. So here we go, verses 1 and 2. Then I was giving a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Father God, give us clarity. Give us clarity tonight, because your word is clear. We're the ones who are not clear, Lord, so give us clarity, so that we could understand your clear word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Part of the reason I'm going to take time tonight is because I don't want to just throw the idealist view out there and act like these other views don't exist. Okay, Um, I don't have the time to give every view on every verse of Revelation. That would be a miserable sermon series. That's why you have study Bibles. I'm preaching through it from the idealist perspective. I think that's what's best for our church to to be able to center the teaching of the Word. Um, But at a major point of divergence like this, it's worth to stop and parse out the views a bit. I'll start with the preterist view because I don't think many of you have interest in it. So let's 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 take. that view and just deal with it. Preterists say that these two verses is all about the destruction of the temple in seventy A.D. and that Revelation in general, for the most part, is fulfilled and, and, and that it all takes place before seventy A.D. Um, R.C. Sproul, who I love, uh, he had some love for this view, which is why his face is on the preterist uh, chart on your your handout. Um, In order to believe this, you have to believe the book of Revelation was written before 70 AD. Otherwise, how could it all be fulfilled in 70 AD, right? And you would have to believe that the suffering that we're talking about in Revelation is all taking place under the Emperor Nero, who reigned um, in Rome before 70 AD from 54 to 68. The problem with this view is that the early church, so the second generation of the church, they all uniformly agreed that John wrote Revelation after 90. So, you have to disagree with all of the early church and their dating of the book of Revelation. And since they knew people who actually knew John, like we're talking about people who knew John, okay? I'm going on their opinion about the authorship of the book. So, because of that, I just, even just on the date of authorship, I can't accept preterism. So, I'm going to set that aside. And again, I don't think we have too many of you who are like, wait a second. You're dismissing my preterism, right? That's I, I, a Southern Baptist church, man. There's not a lot of preterists running around. However, I know we have futurists. Let's remember there's two types of futurists in how they view Revelation. There are dispensationalists who see two separate plans of salvation or two separate programs of redemption for Israel and the church. Then there are historical-slash-classic premillennialists who do not see that. They would see the church as the new covenant people of God who uh, are filled with Jews and Gentiles replacing the old covenant um, uh, people of God in Israel. And a historic classic premillennialist is actually going to agree with me on my interpretation of of, uh, Revelation 11. But when you get to Revelation 20, they're going to be like, oh no, you're wrong. It's the dispensationalists who are right. This stuff's so complex, right? You can't go through the whole book and be like, well, these people believe this on all this stuff. It, it moves depending on the interpreter. Um, it's not always easy. We do our best to use the Bible to interpret the Bible and to come to the best interpretation that we can. This text is speaking about three areas, the temple, the altar, and the outer court. The dispensational view sees this as a literal building that will be constructed in the future. So here's John MacArthur on this in his own words. He says, this refers to the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place, not the entire temple complex. A rebuilt temple will exist during the time of the tribulation. This belief is very much connected to the idea that when God speaks about Israel, he means Israel and not the church, and when he speaks about the church, he's talking about the church and not Israel, and in light of that, since there are two separate bodies, God is doing different and unique things with uh, and in each, and that is why I say dispensationalism sees two fundamentally different programs in how God is dealing with Israel and the church. What dispensationalists argue is that the temple that John is measuring in chapter 11 is a literal building that will be rebuilt on Mount Zion at some point in the future by a reconstituted Israelite state. As of right now, the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque are occupying that space. So, if dispensationalists are correct, those structures will need to be destroyed and then replaced by a third Jewish temple before Jesus returns. Joel Beeky, talking about this, says... When the Jewish state of Israel was established in 1948, and when Jerusalem was captured by Israel in the Six-Day War of 1967, dispensationalists viewed these events as signs of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. This is one reason why the futurist view became popular among many evangelicals in the 20th century. Tim LaHaye's book series didn't hurt, right? It didn't hurt. I am not convinced, surprise, surprise, that John is measuring a literal temple in this passage. And for me, that has to do with the context of Revelation as a whole, as well as what the temple means as the Bible. So let's walk through it. The first temple you really see in the scriptures is not the tabernacle, but it is Eden itself, right? Because what's happening in Eden? God is in perfect relationship with his image bearers. He is ruling in heaven. His image bearers are ruling in the garden as representatives in his place. They are perfectly connected to him in worship. He is joyfully receiving their worship and he is blessing them by returning uh, that joy to them in their obedience. This is the ideal. It's what we long for. It's worship and service to God without the stain of sin. And so Eden is the first temple. But they sin against God and they're ousted from his presence. They're ousted from that first temple. They're kicked out of Eden, right? And then God does what? He uses the tabernacle to dwell among his people. In Exodus 25, the word says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. See, this morning my daughter... Lied to me in her little three year old way, all right. We, her and I, you know, as a parent, these things happen in your house where it becomes a big deal. Other people walk in the house and be like, Y'all are having like a big deal about her locking the door in the morning, her bedroom door. Like, yes, we're having a big fight about this, right? Because that's what happens in parenting, it's not about what they're doing, it's about obedience, right? So, anyways, uh, we had it out this morning, you know, um, and I didn't walk away from that going, man, I don't want to be with her, around her anymore. I don't even want to see her anymore, right? She sinned. I don't want to be around her. No, I still long to be with her. She's my daughter. She's my child, right? There was just distance between us that needed to be dealt with. It's the same way with God. Adam and Eve sinned against God, but God wasn't like, well, I'm done with them. I don't want to be around people. I don't want to see them. I don't want, I don't want a relationship with them. He still wanted to be with his people, right? Despite their sinning, despite their weaknesses, And so he tabernacled with them. And then Solomon is allowed to do that which his father David was not. He built a permanent temple, a permanent place for the people to meet with God. In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. And in building the tabernacle and the temple, the people of God are seeking to recover what they lost in Eden, a place to joyfully serve and worship God, a place to rest in the reality that we are his people and he is our God. But then God sends his son Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the temple, because as God in the flesh, God is dwelling with man in Christ. Which is why John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Greek word for dwelt in John 1.14 means to shelter with or to tabernacle with. So in Christ, God is tabernacling with us in in person, right? In the person of, of, of the Son of God. He is coming to us. And so Christ not only fulfills the temple, but he also puts an end to what happens in the temple, the sacrificial system. And Hebrews 9 tells us this, that as he entered into the heavenly sanctuary to make atonement for us, that he put an end to this whole process of going into the temple and offering these sacrifices. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And then what we're going to see in Luke in two weeks as we finally wrap it up, it was supposed to be this past Sunday, but my ragged little tooth got in the way, so Pastor David stepped up and knocked it out of the park. Um, but uh, in Luke, in a couple of weeks, we're going to see the resurrected Christ ascend to heaven and leave his church with the Holy Spirit. So now the Spirit of the living God, the third person of the Trinity, he dwells in us and we are the temple of God. For now it is in the body of Christ that God dwells with man and man dwells with God. And one day Jesus is going to return and Revelation 21 and 22 paint a picture where the whole of creation becomes the temple. And Eden is restored in the new heavens and the new earth. So Jim Hamilton comments on this. He's a, he's a um, professor at Southern Seminary. Not an idealist, not an amillennialist. He's a futurist, but not a dispensationalist. Because okay? remember, not all futurists uh, are dispensationalists, but all dispensationalists are futurists. Hamilton says this. The goal of this whole trajectory, talking about the whole Bible, is not a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem but a day when the whole of creation will be like the Holy of Holies and the new heavens and the new earth. Summing that up, I think when you look at the passage within the context of Revelation where so much is symbolic and when you look at the temple's purpose in the Bible as a whole, that this is not a rebuilt literal temple in Jerusalem. A few other reasons I believe this, because I want to give you the full picture so you fully know what you're mad at or you fully know what you're disagreeing with, or you fully know what you're agreeing with, right? I also don't think this is a literal temple because Jesus does not predict a rebuilt temple in his Olivet Discourse, though he has ample opportunity. He is literally teaching about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD and what it's going to be like when he comes back, and he doesn't talk about a rebuilt temple. It seems like he would have said it, but I'm not surprised he doesn't because after his death, there is simply no more purpose for a priesthood or a temple any longer. Secondly, in 70 AD, when God did destroy the temple as a judgment against Jerusalem through the hands of the Romans, he did it because of what? Their rejection of Jesus. They rejected the Messiah and they rejected the atonement of the Messiah. And they said, we will not accept your son. We will continue to go into this building and we will continue to cut open the throat of lamb after lamb and bull after bull and goat after goat because we think that will atone for our sins. And God said, no, you will not. I will destroy that building in 70 AD, and you will not go there anymore. And you will not do that, because my son put an end to this. No more of the sacrificial system. It is done. So I have a hard time accepting that God then, as a sign of his son's return and a revival in Israel, because I do believe in the end we're going to see a revival in Israel. I think Romans 9-11 through 11 shows us that, that there will be an, a revival among ethnic Israel uh, toward the end of, of, of time, okay? But but why would God signal to us Jesus is returning and there's going to be a revival in Israel by building again the symbol of the rejection of his son's atonement? I just can't reconcile that. And then I also don't think this is the rebuilding of the temple because New Testament worship and then worship into the new heavens and the new earth is not about a specific building or address or place. Jesus taught the woman at the well, the hour is coming and it's now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth, wherever you are. So what in the world is this? Thing? If it's not a literal building, if the dispensationalists are wrong, and I'm right, okay, I know that's a big gift for a lot of you, then what is this? Well, I think it's the church. I think it's the church. I think he is measuring the church, the temple of the living God. The spirit of the living God dwells in the church. We are the temple. And I believe that he's measuring the church to see who belongs, who does not belong. And in the rest of the chapter, we're going to see the church witnessing. Who does the witnessing? It's those who are measured in these two verses. And we get a clue that that's what we're dealing with because John is told to rise and measure those who worship there, to measure a people which is an odd command, unless we're talking in symbolic terms. Symbolic terms that communicate to us that God is keeping track of his church. So let's walk through it and uh, let me try to show it to you, not just in a logical or kind of big picture way, but let's, let's get into the weeds of the text here. He is the mediator of uh, Med- the temple, which again, i refers to the church in the sense that the temple of the living God is the church, because the spirit of the living God dwells in the church. And that is teaching we get from Paul, and we get from Peter. Paul says, do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. You as an individual are that temple. So I just looked at Reggie. I'll pick on him. Reggie Moss is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Joe Morgan is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Barry Kearns is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Sally Sheard, temple of the Holy Spirit, right? And then collectively, we also are, as the church, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Peter teaches the same thing when he says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Ezekiel promised, this is how it would be in the new covenant, that the Spirit of God would dwell in the people of God, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. As we receive the Spirit of God, we become like living stones that are stacked up with the other living stones, and this is how the church of God is built. This is how the temple of God is built, the New Testament church. And so that's what I believe is being measured here. It's the church. Secondly, he measures the altar, which is probably a reference to the altar of incense, which stood as a real symbol of the devotion of the priesthood. Because they had to come to the altar of incense, not yearly, not monthly, but daily, and they had to come twice a day. Morning and evening, they had to come and burn this combination of spices and tree resin. And so that altar of incense showed just how devoted the priests were to the Lord. Well, as New Testament believers, the Lord has made us a priesthood, right? 1 Peter 2, verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Revelation 20, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. John will measure the church as an altar and not just as a temple because the church, like the priesthood, must be devoted to the Lord night and day. Like the priest coming to the altar to burn the spices and the resin, right? We must be, uh, morning and evening, faithfully devoted to the Lord. We're given access. We have access. We can't say, well, I can't be devoted to God because I don't have access to God. No, you have access to God by the blood of Jesus. Therefore, we have no excuse not to be devoted to him day and night in our service, in our worship, in the way we talk, and in what we do, and in how we think. And one of the ways that God will measure his church and he will know who belongs to him is by devotion. It's by those who are his servants. Those who in the heart long to honor him day and night. And lastly, he is to measure the church as worshipers. Spirit and and, and truth worshipers. So God knows who his church is. He's keeping up with who his church is. And part of the way he knows who his church is is because of their devotion and their worship. Notice John is to not measure the outer court. The court outside the temple would be the court of the Gentiles. John is not to measure the Gentile court because these are not God's people. These are unbelievers. In the Old Testament, the difference between Jew and Gentile was noted by an alteration of the flesh. It was circumcision. The mark of circumcision is what let people know whether or not you're in the tribe or you're outside of the tribe. You're part of God's people or you're not part of God's people. But in the New Testament, it's not about whether or not your flesh is altered. It's about what has happened in your heart. Does your heart show that it belongs to the Lord? Because it's worshiping, right? Because it's devoted. Colossians 2, Paul says, In him, you, uh, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead. So when He converted you and He raised your dead spiritual life from the grave, and He gave you eternal life, and He put the Holy Spirit in you, your heart became circumcised. So He says, "In you who were dead in the trespasses and the uncircumcision of your, God, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses." So now, in the New Testament, the terms have changed. The truly Jewish people, the true Israel, it's the church. And you might have Abraham's blood in your veins, or you might have some Gentile blood in your veins. But those who truly belong to the Lord and are the people of the Lord are those who worship the Lord and who are devoted to the Lord, who have circumcised hearts. The Gentile is now not the person who doesn't have Abraham's blood, the person who doesn't have Abraham's faith. The person who rejects God's Son with a dead, uncircumcised heart. That's the Gentiles. It's unbelievers. And so with that in mind, look at verse it says, the court of the temple is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now, I'm going to stop right here. I'm going to take my glasses off and look at you. I can't see any of you. But I'm going to get serious and tell you that I don't care what you believe about Revelation. You want to walk up to me and you want to say, Man, Revelation 1 through uh, 14 is easy stuff. It's easy stuff. I'm dispensational. It's easy stuff. I'm, I'm post-millennial. It's easy stuff. I will look at you and I will say, brother, go home and get honest with yourself. And stop lying. It's, ain't, it's, it's not easy stuff. And it's not easy stuff because our little pea brains have a, a really hard time with the richness and the density of the Word of God in this chapter. Okay? Because it's connected what we're seeing here. Because when you read this and you're like, all right, wait a second, 42 months, what's that? And then next verse, we didn't read it tonight, if you keep going, 1260 days, what's, what's that? We've got to go back to Daniel 9. We've got to look at some Daniel 9. We've got to do some math. I mean, things get hairy here. And so for the rest of the night, we've got 11 minutes left, I'm going to ask you to track with me better than you ever have in the time that I've been your pastor. I'm serious, all right? Whatever it is got to do in 11 minutes, try to get it out of your mind, and just right now lock in on this, because it takes every bit of the brain power you have as a human being to understand this. It's, it's hard stuff. Here we go. Standard left-behind view would be that this reference to 42 months is a literal period of time. Just as I believe the temple is a symbol of God's people, I also believe that this period of time here is symbolic. But to understand the symbol, we got some work to do. I am leaning very heavily on Dr. Jim Hamilton. I mentioned him earlier. I'm leaving, leaning very heavily on this brother for my explanation here. In his commentary on Revelation, he does a great job. Again, not an idealist, not an amillennialist, but he and I agree the interpretation of this passage, and I think he nails it. 42 months, that's three and a half years, I don't care what your opinion about Revelation is, that we agree on, right? 36 months equals three years. You add six months to it, that's half a year. 42 months equals three and a half years. All right, that in mind, let's go to Daniel 9. Let's read it. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. "...know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then, for sixty-two weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary." Its end shall come with the flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. That has meaning for Daniel's time. That has meaning for Israel as they were leaving exile. We don't have time to get into all that tonight, but this, like most prophecy in the Old Testament, has a double fulfillment. Okay, but we cannot ignore the meaning that it has to Revelation. And again, no matter what you believe about Revelation, you have to connect Revelation 11 to Daniel 9. Everybody does it. Wherever you land, everybody connects Revelation 11 to Daniel 9 and Daniel 70 weeks. Okay, so this would be a good time to get this out. And if you have a monocle or eyeglasses or whatever you use, I know that the writing is small, so you can get that out as well. All right. 70 weeks would be better translated 70 70 times 7, which would equal 490. And we should also be ready to understand The week is being symbolic for years because that interpretive approach is established with the uh, year of Jubilee in Leviticus 25. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Gabriel comes to Daniel in Daniel 9. says there's going to be 69 weeks from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one. If we take the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem as the call on Nehemiah to rebuild the walls, and we take the anointed one to be Jesus, then this 69-week period would refer to the time between Nehemiah and Jesus, okay? Nehemiah returned to rebuild the walls in 445 B.C. Jesus was crucified around 30 A.D. 69 sevens or 69 weeks would amount to 445 years. You add a 30 to that, you get 475. Historian Harold Honer has argued that if you adjust leap years and calendar variations, there are exactly 483 years from Nehemiah to Jesus' triumphal entry. You can argue that, all right? I'll be honest with you. You can argue that. Being exact about where in Jesus' life we're talking about in Daniel 9, uh, I'm not sure, I just definitely believe it refers to the cross, and we'll get there. If what we're saying is true, Daniel nine twenty four is Gabriel explaining that 77s are decreed. Daniel nine twenty five through 26 are Gabriel explaining what will happen in the first 69 weeks. Then, in Daniel 9, verse 27, we read this. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wings of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. <laughs> when it says here he makes strong covenant, I believe that that is talking about the new covenant. When it says here that he is going to make strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, I believe this is referring to Jesus' death, where he makes the final sacrifice for sin. And then... The back half of the week, you have somebody coming who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. And I believe this is Satan, and it's talking about how Satan is going to cause desolation in the world during the age of the church until Christ returns and he pours out desolation on the desolator. Okay. To sum it up, in retrospect, the first 69 weeks would refer to the time in between Nehemiah and Holy Week. The 70th week would refer to the time of the new covenant. In the first half of the week, Jesus dies for us and makes atonement. In the second half of the week, it's the church age, a time where the church is proclaiming the gospel, Satan's in the nation causing conquest and war and famine and death and persecution to the church. In order to interpret this way, I have to take the first 69 weeks as being literal and I have to take the last week as being symbolic. I think the text of Daniel 9 pushes me to do that. All right? Bringing it back to Revelation 11, verse 2, in the 42 months, I think that this is a reference to the last half of Daniel's 70th week. 42 months is three and a half years, or half of seven years. Each of Daniel's weeks represents seven years, apart from the last one, which I'm interpreting as a symbolically um, allotted amount of time in which Christ makes atonement, and then the church is witnessing, and Satan is opposing us. The trampling that's taking place in verse 2 then would be a reference to the persecution of the church. Satan making war against the church. Holy See in verse 2 is another reference to the church. Just like the terms have changed and now the title of Israel belongs to anybody who has Abraham's faith and the title of Gentile belongs to any unbeliever who rejects Abraham's faith and just like the term priest refers to any believer who now has access to God through Christ and just like the term temple now refers to the church which is the, uh, the, 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 the place where the spirit of the living God dwells, the term holy city no longer belongs to Jerusalem. It is an expression that refers to the people of God. The bride who make up the new Jerusalem. In Revelation 21, verse 2, it says, And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, listen, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. How can a city be prepared as a bride unless she is a people? And so this understanding of the last half of Daniel's 70th week being the church age, for me, it squares with the rest of Revelation. Next week, we will see the two witnesses, which I will argue is the church, and they are prophesying for the Lord. For how long? 1260 days. How long is 1260 days? That's three and a half years or 42 months. The same amount of time that the unbelievers are going to be trampling the outer courts of the church, persecuting us, right? Right? It's the second half of Daniel's symbolic 70th week where the church is a witness and the nations are responding with vitriol. In chapter 12, verse 6, the people of God are nourished for 1,260 days until Jesus returns. Same idea. Chapter 12, verse 14, the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. When we get to that passage, you will see that the woman is the church, she's protected from the serpent who is Satan. How long is she protected? For a time, times, and half a time. 1260, 42, three and a half. It's a reference to the aforementioned numbers. Next week, when we look at the two witnesses, the church uh, that represents the church, they're killed in the streets. Their dead bodies are lying in the streets. For how long? For three and a half days or half a week. This understanding here. Um, certainly sets a dispensationalist's head on fire. They would disagree strongly and say, no, 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 brother. Daniel's 70th week is the seven years of tribulation that follows the secret rapture of the church. There are premillennialists who would disagree with you on that if you are a dispensationalist. They agree with you on the millennium. They disagree with you on that. Right? There are idealists who would agree with pretty much everything I've said about Revelation up to this point, but they would scoff at me for the idea of taking the first 69 weeks of Daniel literally. They'd be like, no, 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 no. None of the weeks are literal. Don't take any of them literal. It's all symbolic. This stuff's not easy. It's not easy, right? There were times in my sermon prep where I was sitting there with seven different books open, all not in agreement, calculator out, crunching numbers, calculating the time in between Nehemiah and Jesus for myself, And in my head, I'm thinking, I'm going to sow a whirlwind with the church. And somehow they need to get clarity from it. So to that end, allow me to summarize, hoping that you don't reap the whirlwind. John is measuring who belongs to the church. The church is expressed in terms of temple, altar, and worshipers. John is not measuring those in the courtyard of the Gentiles. They oppose the church and the gospel. They are trampling the church for 42 months. The 42 months equals three and a half years, which is a reference to the back half of the 70th of Daniel's 70 weeks. The first 69 play out between Nehemiah and Jesus. The first half of his 70th week refers to Jesus coming and atoning for sin. The second half of that week is what we're presently living in, the church age. Satan brings desolation, inspiring the nations to make war against the church, but in the end, Christ will bring desolation on the desolator. All that in two verses? Yep. And that's why Revelation's awesome. I'll close by saying this. When you look into the origin story of the church, we are forged in blood. Our Lord was crucified in blood. His bloody death is what we point to as the source of our life. And then the church begins with blood. The gospels preach, thousands come to Christ at Pentecost, but then the religious authorities say, you stop preaching this gospel or we will make you bleed. And when the church says, all we can do is what God told us to do, and they keep preaching, the authorities take action into their own hands, and they kill one of them. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And that's been the pattern ever since. We preach, some respond, but more are angry. Not just dismissive of us, but they are angry. And then Satan uses that anger to bring pain to the body of Christ. And to try to trample the bride of Christ. Wherever the gospel is growing... You can bend down, and you can pick up some of the dirt, and you can check it, and you will find the blood of the church. The gospel is growing in South Korea. You check the dirt, and you will find the blood of the believers in the 1700s who learned of Christianity in Beijing, and they secretly brought it back to their homeland, and they started spreading it. You'll find the blood of a man named Kim Taigon, the first Korean to be ordained as a priest. Three months after his ordination, they cut his head off, and his final words were, I leave you with the kiss of my love. We'll see him in heaven. The gospel grows in the Philippines, but you can check the ground. Find the blood of Martin Burnham, a missionary who was taken hostage in 2002 and killed for his faith by Muslim extremists. The other hostages say that Burnham was completely unafraid to die, and he spent his final days comforting the other hostages with the truth of the gospel and trying to share it with his Muslim captors. And we will see our brother in heaven. The gospel grows in Yorktown. You can check the ground and find the blood. of 30 Baptist preachers who spent 1768 to 1770 in prison because the official religion of the colony was Anglican. And these men would not baptize their babies. And there are more than 800 churches in our state convention and every single one of us owes a debt of gratitude to these men. My point is that empires come and go and centuries come and go and time and time again, Satan incites violence against Christ's church through sinful men. And how often have those men thought that they had it within their power to eradicate the Gospel and to kill the church only to find when you weaken her, she will not perish. Because God has guaranteed her survival and success. He has told us that He will build His church on a confession like Peter's. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So the trumpets are sounding and wars are raging and oppositions all around us. But until the seventh trumpet blows, the church will continue on. And we know that because of who is caring for us. And so, God is John, measure the church. And what is implied in that is those that are measured are known and cared for down to the individual. He knows who we are. His devoted. His worshipers. And the nations trample us. And they break us down. But we are not abandoned and we are not crushed and we are not destroyed. Because the sealed saints of God will continue on in their mission as the Lord's witness. Next week we'll see them dancing in our bodies in the streets and exchanging presents over our dead bodies like it's Christmas. But God will not let his church die. He knows who we are. He dwells with us. And in the end, he will protect us and vindicate us. And so Satan can rile up the nations and he can run us down and he can run us over. But the strength of Christ will get us back up, and we will point to the crucified and resurrected Savior all over again. And the gospel will keep advancing until he returns. And everywhere it grows, it's the blood of the church. It's the blood of the church that you'll find on the ground. And he'll use it to glorify himself. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the great cloud of witnesses tonight. Um, I thank you, Father, for men like Kim Taigon who gave his life for Jesus so that Koreans would know the love of Christ. And today, God, half of that country, or what used to be that country, is, Lord, as atheist as it can get, and they hate your gospel, and half of them is one of the most Christian nations on the earth. I praise you, God, that for all the Christianity in South Korea, we have to look back at the ground and say you used the blood of a man like Kim Taigon. So, Lord, we're going to suffer. We know that. We're going to suffer. We're not going to suffer over what kind of shoes stupid M&M candies are wearing, God. We're not going to suffer over those things. We're going to suffer over proclaiming this gospel and standing for this Jesus. We're going to suffer over saying people must repent, they must turn from their sin and put their trust in Christ. When the world hears that, they're going to know what we're saying. We're saying they have to give up their agenda. They have to give up their morality. They have to give up the way that they think that the world should be run. They have to give up everything. And they have to say that you are right, God. And they have to bow the knee and surrender to you. And the idea of that, the idea of that even being suggested is an act of war in the hearts of so many of them. And so, God, they will respond with hatred. Somehow they will interpret our message of love as hatred. But what we're seeing in this text, God, is that you will measure your church. You will not let her be destroyed they may trample us but it's for a time It's for a time and you will return and just as your son will be vindicated as he receives the title of lord and the nations become his footstool we will be vindicated as the co-heirs who reign with him the kingdom of priests forever and ever i love you lord thank you for your word we struggle to understand it sometimes but I have to think that you gave us chapters like Revelation 11 so we would search. If it was all Psalm 23, we might assume we know it all. But we've got to search. It's dense, it's rich, it's awesome. And uh, Father, I pray that we wouldn't stop and that we would continue to, uh, to consider Revelation 11 as we leave and you would continue to use your word to transform your people. And uh, Father, I pray that we leave here um, just once again uh, in awe of who you are and what you've spoken to us in your Bible. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.